0: I might have said the last time we were together in the book of Second Corinthians that so it was my hope that at this point we'd move a little bit more quickly through uh, the book, but I, uh, I didn't do that for some reason. So I'm going to try this this morning uh, to do things a little bit differently. What I'd like to do is basically to go through uh, the rest of these two chapters, Second Corinthians eight and nine, and basically to read it with just a little running commentary, perhaps if there's something that needs to be. Um, Expounded a little bit further, uh, you let me know, uh, but we 'll also look to get through this material. And then, as we get through the material, just to try to pull together a theology of giving that Paul gives to us in this passage, because I believe we really do have just an abundance of instruction about the whole subject of of giving. Of course, this is a section that's about the, the the offering that Paul's taking up for the needy saints in Jerusalem. It's something that he speaks about in the Roman letter in chapter 15. It's something that he'd already spoken to the Corinthians about in 1 Corinthians 16, and it's something that he devotes two chapters to in this in this uh, passage. And you remember last time we saw that Paul is looking to set before. The Corinthians, the example of the churches of Macedonia, although they were very, very poor, yet even in their extreme poverty, uh, found uh, an over- overflowing wealth of generosity, he says, uh, to give to these needy saints. And, um, uh, These Corinthians had begun to take up this offering about a year ago, Paul says in this passage, but they had not brought it to completion, and now Paul wants it to come to completion. But now, he wants to be clear uh, that he's not looking to make this a matter of involuntary, you know, just drag it out of you. It's a matter that is to be um, voluntary out of their hearts it's a matter of the heart giving in the scriptures is a spiritual thing it's not just a commercial transaction of putting x amount of money in a in an offering plate it, it's a matter of the attitude of our hearts it's the fact that we enter in to the work of a giving god god himself is first given to us and then he expects in return we who have received his gifts will be generous with those gifts this is not necessarily given for us, for our sake. And we think that we think that, though this is for me. But that's the essence of a greedy, covetous heart. But a heart that is attuned to the um, to the gospel uh, sees that the things God's blessed us with, we have a stewardship over. And part of that stewardship is that we're to seek to be merciful to the poor, to the needy, and we're to uh, uh, if, if, the, if the Macedonians can give out of their poverty. Well, the relatively wealthy Corinthians probably could have done at least as much, if not a whole lot more. And in fact, they should have done much more simply because they have a whole bunch more. Again, Cor- Corinth was a, was a commercial town. It was on that isthmus of Corinth. It was coming between the two uh, great bodies of water. They uh, would bring their cargo over that isthmus by land to uh, get the goods from Asia over to Rome, and uh, money was being made. People were working and uh, people were um, making money uh, as those who were involved in commercial transactions and uh, hence uh, the need wasn't there also wasn't a persecuted church the Macedonians had been horribly persecuted by even their government officials Um, and so Corinth should have done at least as well but Paul says, I say that not as a command in verse 8. And that's where we begin, be, begin the reading. That's, we looked at the first seven verses uh, last time. In verse 8 he says, I, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, and, and the others, really, of the Corinthians themselves, um, that they would themselves prove uh, your love is also genuine, genuine at least matches what you see among the Macedonians, if not even going much further. But, you know, it's not just the Macedonians that they're to take as the example of how they are to give. There's a much greater exemplar that's set forth to us as the people of God, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So in verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, and of course the riches there are the riches he had in the presence of his Father from the foundation of the world, um, and yet for your sake he became poor. He came into this world as a man who had not a place to lay his head. For your sake um, he became poor so that by his poverty uh, you might become rich. And again, the riches which we possess as the people of God are not necessarily material riches. So this whole matter of riches and poverty, yes, it has a, 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 a material component to it because you have poor poor, and needy um, jerusalemites that need to be ministered to by those who have something of this world's goods but the riches and poverty really is a more uh, spiritual thing what are the wealth and riches we have in the blessings of the gospel we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places we have had the unsearchable riches of christ proclaimed to us and that's what our wealth consists in it's not our are about a bottom line in terms of what we have in our bank account. It's the, the riches of a blessing that God has given uh, over and beyond measure. And so Paul says, in this matter, that is the matter of the giving. Uh, I give my judgment. This benefits you. This matter of entering into this um, matter of the needy saints of Jerusalem, it benefits you. It's not just looking to extract something unwillingly from you that you want to give this benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work but also desired to do it you saw the benefit of it maybe he argued as he does to the Romans you received Jerusalem's spiritual blessings and now you give in return you give them their carnal blessings you got the gospel from them and you can't just be pillowing your head at night content to just regale yourself in the fact you have sufficiency your needs are met When needy saints in Jerusalem don't have their needs met. There's a a minimum uh, need that we ought to be ready to give as much as we are able in terms of these Gentile churches. And also to show their fellowship in the gospel, their love uh, to the needy saints in Jerusalem. To see the unity of the church expressed in this way. So now Paul says, now finish doing it well. I'm sorry, finish doing it as well. Uh, You had this readiness, now get it done. Such so your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have I think I need to put this above my desk uh, because I come, in, I come to work in the morning always thinking I'm going to accomplish great things I'm going to get so much done today there's so much readiness and there's so much desire and yet I come to the end of my day and say man oh man How do you fight drooping eyes? (laughs) You know, your eyeballs just... You didn't get it done. And so often that's what we are. The flesh is... The Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, Paul says you got to do more than just be desiring to get it done or ready to get it done. Get it done. Get it done. It has to be matched by completing it out of what you have. And you have the sufficiency to do it. Get it done. Get it done. He says, for if the readiness is there... As acceptable according to what a person has not according to what he does not have maybe one of the reasons they are reluctant to get it done is they're saying well look next year I'm expecting a greater amount of gain because a deal is coming through or some shipment I sent down to some other places is going to come back with just a lot of uh, monetary rewards so I'll have more to give then so uh, I'm waiting I'm waiting But the hunger of the people in Jerusalem is not going to wait. So it's a matter that you're ready. Do it, because what's acceptable is you give what you have. Not what you're expecting to get. Not when some increase in your state will happen somewhere down the line. It's not according to what you don't have. You have an ability to do it now, get it done. Don't speculate about tomorrow. The hungry bellies are there in Jerusalem. They need the money. Get it done. Get it done now. Uh, he says, "I don't mean that you should that others should be eased and you burdened." Maybe he's thinking of the uh, people in Achaia. Uh, I'm sorry, in Macedonia or in Galatia or other churches. He says, "I don't mean to burden you, but that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at this present time should supply their need. Now, the object is not to make them wealthy." You're not looking to take Rick's Corinthians and say, Corinthians, impoverish yourselves so that the Jerusalemites might become wealthy. That's not the issue. The issue is not to impoverish one group so that others would thrive. The issue is need exists, and you're the people that have the supply. And you're the people that should, just because of Christian love and the unity of the church and all the reasons that it's proper, those who, we who freely receive to give, um, to give at this time. And so that their abundance may supply your need, uh, that there may be fairness, equitab- equi- equi- equitability. He's not saying that everything's going to be equal, but everything's going to be equitable. Everything's going to be just and fair, that you don't turn away the cry of the poor. You don't turn away the cry of the needy and not hear it, but you respond to it. And there may come a time, Paul's saying, that your need may be apparent. Maybe... Uh, if something's going to happen to Corinth that's going to make it impossible for you to uh, fulfill your needs, and uh, then Jerusalem might have fared better. Hard to see how because, you know, not too long ago from this point, Jerusalem was going to get ransacked by the Romans and. Um, the, greater need would, would exist, although much many of the Christians left the city by Jesus' warning in the Gospels. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, uh, he says, head out to the hills, go out to the mountains. And uh, they did that. Many of the Christians did that, being warned by Jesus not to stay in the city and fight their Romans. Uh, but yet um, greater peril awaited them. But still, <laughs> The point is that we should be concerned where the need exists. And where the greatest need exists in the church, those who have an ability to meet that need ought to. But Then he says in verse 16, and again I'm just running through this as fast as I can, and we're going to draw draw together the principles of theology of giving at the end. He says in verse 16, but thanks be to God who put it into the heart of Titus the same care I have for you. Titus is his point man for this offering. He's going to be sending him and two other men uh, to make certain that the offering is ready when Paul gets there. Paul says in verse 17, For he not only accepted our appeal, uh, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. Titus emerged successful from their previous mission Paul sent him on when there was the matter of the painful visit and uh, the, the things that needed to be done in terms of repentance and that turned out to be a great success. Now Titus is going to come back with this matter of the, um, of the offering. With him we're sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And you wish you knew who that was. Paul didn't tell us. The Corinthians knew it. He was famous in those churches. Unfortunately, he's not famous in the church today, so we just don't know who this person is. This unidentified individual is going to accompany Paul. Another unidentified individual is going to be spoken of in the rest of the passage. Verse 19, he says, And not only that, but he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace, is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our goodwill. And so this man, who's famous for the preaching of the gospel, also was uh, chosen by the churches to do this. This is not uh, Paul's guy. Paul doesn't say, "I'm going to I'm going to get somebody that I approve of." is somebody that the churches approved of. See, Paul seems to want to make it clear that nothing, no funny stuff's going on here with this matter of, of giving. I'm not looking to take your material things to pocket it. Uh, We're not as the many who make merchandise of the word of God. We're not after covetousness. We're not after personal gain. And uh, so this is getting regulated by a structure of accountability that Paul himself is setting out for the Corinthians. So that this is a matter that there's accountability. Um, The the, the churches chose the man. He didn't choose the man. The churches did. Paul says in verse 20, we take this course that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. That's interesting that Paul is is saying it's not just enough to say, "Well, well the Lord knows the honorability of my intentions. The Lord may well know the honorability of your intentions, but hey, we live among human beings who observe and see. And if you're giving them reason to wonder uh, just how come uh, all of a sudden Pastor Gordon's dressing so well. Um, Places I used to buy my clothes uh, don't have male clothes any longer. They've all shut down. But see, all you think Sears has of men's dress clothes are the old signs. That's all that's there. <laughs> you see what, what used to be there is not there now so I've tended to buy online and I get really good deals. <laughs> I'm really cheap online. So anyway but you see Suspicions raised in people's minds. And so we want to avoid that, Paul says. We, we, we want to do all things honorable in the sight of the Lord and also in the sight of man. And so with, with, with them, that is with Titus and this brother who's famous for preaching, we're sending our brother, who we've often tested and found earnest in many matters. He's a third guy that's coming into the party. Titus, the brother famous for preaching, and the brother often tested and found earnest in many matters, uh, and he's more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. He wants to see that you complete the, the things you began a year ago. It gets completed, and he's confident that you guys are going to get it done. So Paul's giving all these words of encouragement. Get it done. Everybody's everybody's waiting for it. Everybody's expecting it. Everybody's anticipating that, in fact, as you began um, with earnestness and with um, Zeal for this ministry, you're you're going to complete it. And as for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches. And he uses the word for apostles. Apostles. And we think of apostles as the the twelve. We think of the apostles as those those that Jesus has sent. But they're those the churches have sent. These are the designated representatives of the churches that are going to complete this matter of the offering for the saints in Jerusalem. And Paul also calls them the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ. And so, give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Don't don't come up short. We have to say, well, Paul, you said they'd be ready, but they really weren't. And, you know, everybody's kind of let down by them. Uh, Don't let that happen. Uh, Let the Um, boasting we've made about you to these men uh, truly be fulfilled by the completion of the offering and we might say that uh, just I'm going to ask you if you have any questions about chapter 8 before we move into chapter 9 but just before we do I think it's interesting to note that uh, there was this um, delay or interruption in the Corinthian readiness to collect the offering and uh, they didn't get it done years gone by, hasn't been done well, what's happened in that year? A lot of problems with Paul and the Corinthian church, right? We've already covered that ground. Of there's also disruption of fellowship. There's a disruption of love and of loyalty, and there's a question: Are, are these Corinthians going to continue to be uh, favorable towards and obedient to their apostle, or are they going to follow these super apostles that are make, uh, putting all kinds of shade on Paul and his reputation? Um, so it was this problem that emerged with the painful letter and the painful visit and all the rest that happened that um, caused this delay to take place. And you might think, well, hang your head and shame, everybody, that uh, all this happened. But it's interesting to know that in the sovereignty of God, the interruption of this offer, of this uh, offering, this project of meeting the needs of the Jerusalem saints, the fact that it was interrupted, you know what it gives to us? two chapters on the subject of giving two chapters instructing us about the grace of giving we wouldn't have if this problem did not emerge and so God is able to take out of a very difficult problem something that leads to a very beneficial result so throw that out before you well we're done with chapter 8 and uh, we've got uh, 15 more verses to look at uh, before we get to the theology of giving any questions at all? Well, let's get through the rest of it, okay? Now, Paul says it's superfluous in verse 1 of chapter 9 for me to write to you about the ministry to the saints. Uh, Why? He's taught them about this. (laughs) It's in in chapter 16 of the first letter. It's not that they're without instruction. They had sufficient instruction um, to be ready a year ago to begin the process of getting this ministry done. Uh, I know your readiness, he says, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. I told them that uh, the Corinthians were right in front with this matter of giving to the needy saints and that uh, caused those people to say, well, you know, we don't want them to be the only one to bear this burden. We want to join in. We want to contribute our own offerings and gifts uh, to this work. So your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. And so what they're doing is they're the ones that are going to be the advanced party. They're going to go before Paul. They're going to make sure everything is done. So that when Paul himself arrives uh, there may not be uh, some shame that's brought because, well, Paul, what did you say about these people? He had them all wrong. Paul wants them not to Put them in that place, but they shouldn't be in that place um, where they're reluctant or not continue to be zealous, where they don't complete this, get this, this ministry that they began a year ago and they had intended to complete, but they didn't. Now get it done. Get it complete. Suppose giving them all these statements and arguments to make them act upon the matter and to get it done. And so he says, uh, otherwise, in verse 4, if some Macedonians come with me, and you know, we have these, uh, this delegation already there, uh, we're going to follow them, and we're going to have some people from Macedonia, likely in the group, that's going to come with me, and uh, we find that you're not ready. When we get there, uh, the advance party came, and, and, and you didn't do it for them, you didn't do it knowing we were coming, you're not ready. And Paul says, we would be humiliated. We, we boasted in you. We said that uh, you, you're, on, you're, in, you're in advance of this. You began this ministry before the Macedonians did. And now the Macedonians have completed it out of their poverty, and you in the abundance of your wealth and riches have, have nothing to show for this. So he says in verse 5, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you, arrange in advance for the gift you've promised, so they may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. They <laughs> may meet Paul at the door saying, Look at what we've given, Paul. <laughs> this is our, our our gift of love to the needy saints in Jerusalem. And uh, we gave it out of hearts that desire uh, to see these needs met. And Paul would have to stand in the door and say, Wait a minute, when you guys promised, what happened to the promise? Why have you not fulfilled the promise? That would be a form of exaction. Is like he's taxing them, like he's putting a burden on them. Paul says that shouldn't be. And the point is this, he says in verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. I need us to pause here to say something that, this is one of the most abused texts on the part of those who speak about uh, uh, seed faith, and they speak about... uh, Uh, faith that's going to bring in your millions, uh, the wealth and prosperity uh, message. This is really saying nothing, really, about uh, material sowing of money. It's not seed money that's put into an offering, and you're going to expect, if you've given 20 bucks, God's going to give you 2,000 back. That's just completely absurd. Because the whole matter of this imagery of sowing and and reaping is the recognition that, first of all, God gives the seed. If, if God didn't give the seed in his creative act uh, and his preserving act of the world, the farmers would have nothing. I mean, this—you know, I know you have genetically modified stuff and all sorts of things that they do in the laboratory, but the real fact is, the, the farmer works with a giving God, a God who is already given, who's already blessed him with the seed to sow for the next season's harvest. And he's putting that, that that seat in the ground, really not with expectation of becoming a millionaire, but of meeting the needs of his family and the needs of his community, being able to give to the poor, able to use the things that a giving God has given as we enter in to the giving enterprise that God himself has already begun, that God himself has already started. And that's really true of the gospel. Is that we have a gospel to preach because we've been given it. It's been given as a gift of God's grace. But often in the scriptures, with reference to this whole matter of sowing and reaping, it's a spiritual exercise. It's not something that's just a matter of um, just earthly, material, carnal uh, blessings. Now, Paul speaks about sowing to the spirit in the Galatian letter, and not sowing to the flesh. And he says, uh, what a man sows, he'll also reap. And the whole matter of this sowing and reaping is the recognition that... Um, I'm just questioning something just as a, a pause here for a minute what I'm questioning is there's something here that has to do with the quotation with regard to the manna miracle and, and why did I not say anything about that where did I miss it where is that in the passage about um, they that sowed much had nothing uh, gathered; much had nothing left over, and they that gathered little had no lack. Where's that in this passage? Somebody help me here. I have to confess, I'm a bit lost. I'm sorry. Eight fifteen. There you go. There you go. Yeah, it's written. Whoever gathered much had little left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And that's speaking about the manna miracle. Uh, God gave the manna in the wilderness for what? So people could say, well, well, this manna blessing is is just so great, I can enter into the manna business. I can enter into an, an entrepreneurial sale of manna. So I'll go out there when the manna is given, I'll just collect bunches and bunches and bunches and bunches, store it up, and then my needy brethren won't have enough, and so they'll have to come to me. And then I can exact a lot of money and make a lot of money. Do sort of what Joseph did as he t- took all the wealth of the seven full years of grain and then when people in the seven lean years came to Pharaoh to get the grain he had to, they really sold themselves basically they became Pharaoh's servants well that's not God's plan I mean there was a sense in which it was God's plan with reference to getting the Jews down into Egypt using those things but it's not God's plan with respect to how he meets the needs of his people because you went out there to collect the manna. Let's say you looked to take more than your omar fill. I think it was an omar, a measurement that they were to take. That was to be sufficient for themselves and their family. Let's say they decided instead of taking in one omar, but we'll take in two. What happened the next day? It, it, it putrefied. It, it was worms. It, there was nothing to, to eat. Uh, so, and the, the point of it is, this is how God sustains His people. This is how God meets their needs. Not how He makes them wealthy. How He meets their needs and with reference to the needy saints in Jerusalem who are needy, not because lack of industry, lack of diligence, it's not that they had some character deficiency, these were Christian brethren under persecution, these were Christian brethren experiencing conditions of drought, and those who received from the Lord the blessings of of sufficiency, now had a responsibility uh, to meet their need. It's not a question of um, uh, sowing bountifully so that we can get real are really filthy rich and then oppress our brethren uh, who have nothing. No. Uh, Paul says the whole purpose of reaping is to give. The whole purpose of reaping is to use what God gives us uh, as the reward of our labor, as the fruit of our labor, as a steward. Each each one must give, verse 7, as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, what you have is yours. That's what, uh, that's what uh, Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira. Before you sold it, wasn't it yours? It was yours. Nobody was looking to take your property from you. What happened in Acts chapter 2, where they sold their possessions and goods and gave it to the people who had need, was not out of a question of compulsion. It was out of a question of love. It was a question of the church's desire to minister to the needy and to put the wealth in the hands of the apostles to distribute to the poor. So that when the uh, poor widows came um, uh, to the daily ministration, there would be adequacy there to, to feed them, to feed them, to meet their needs. The church had a responsibility to give for those ends of meeting the legitimate needs of the poor so it's not out of compulsion but out of love God loves a cheerful giver and God's able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work so the sufficiency he's granted you is that you could use it in active works of kindness and goodness and mercy and charitable efforts to supply the needs to others as it is written and here's a quotation of Psalm uh, 112 you should read it uh, I'm not going to get into it now but it's an amazing description of the righteous man and one of the things that the righteous man does is being blessed of God he's a blesser he's one who's looking to bless others with the abundant blessings he's received he's overflowing with blessing and he's overflowing with giving and part of what he does and I think it's in the words of verse 9 of Psalm 112 he distributes freely Freely. He's given to the poor. Nobody's taxing him. He's giving it freely. It's not 10%. It's what he's able to give. This righteousness endures forever. As Paul concludes, he who supplies the seed. That's God who supplies the seed. It's God who gives us uh, material seed for the farmer to plant in the ground. The spiritual seed with which to minister and serve and bless others. To give seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. And the increase of the harvest of your righteousness It's not to increase the harvest of your wealth. It's not to make you filthy rich. It's to make you righteous. It's to make you righteous. It's to, righteous. It's to enter into the whole complex of no, notion of, of a giving God. Of a God who blesses the earth with rain and with fruitful seasons. Not so you can grab it and say, for me, but, but that you could receive it with thankfulness and distribute to others as you have opportunity and as need exists. Freely receive, you've received. Freely give. And so enter into that whole complex of giving. And that's why Paul says earlier on, um, he says... Um, Is not turning upon it. But he says, uh, yeah, okay, there is a verse 10. He says, in the matter I give my judgment, this benefits you. This benefits you. This is not so much that the major part of the benefit is going to be the needy saints of Jerusalem. It's going to benefit you. Because it's in this complex of, 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 of understanding your place in this work of God and giving to the needs of others you're going to grow as a Christian. You're going to be blessed in the giving. He, that's why Jesus says in uh, Acts 20, Paul quotes him, it's, it's not, nothing we find in the Gospels, but it was obviously something that the church knew Jesus had said. And Paul states it to the uh, uh, elders of Ephesus when he meets them in Miletus in Acts chapter 20. Um, he says, and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, is more blessed to give than to receive. It's in the giving that you get bonded to those to whom you give. You know, as a people, when we gave to the needy people in Haiti, weren't they more the focus of our prayer concern and our interest? How were they faring? What are they doing? Are things improving? Are they not? As we gave to the people affected by the floods in Kentucky, again, there's a bond that's there. And again, those things were not personal so much because we gave it through agencies working in those areas just because the concern was that great. But let's say there was a church. Let's say Catskill began to have problems. Um, and they were affected and they had need. And we were able to give sort of a personal gift, bring it by the hands of the, the deacons up to Catskill. And say, so the people of Pine Bush, we love you. We're praying for you. And here we've t- taken up this offering. What a joy. To be able to meet their needs in the first place. And, what, and, and, and how was their reaction? Well, they're thankful to God. They're responsive to us. They're saying those people in Pine Bush love us. They're praying for us. There's a tangible evidence of that fact. And there's a deepening of our bonds in Christian love and fellowship through this matter of giving where need exists. And so Paul says, you will be enriched in every way in verse 11. The giver is enriched in every way. To be generous in every way. To have a giving heart. You get into a pattern of giving, you want to give more. If, when you're able, when you can. If you've been in the position of being the receiver of the gift of others, what do you want more than anything? Well, I thank you for the love of the people there, but I'd like to in some ways, show my love in the way of reciprocal giving. I like to find an opportunity. For them or someone else that has need, there's this spirit of generosity, the spirit of liberality, there's the spirit of interest and concern with the needs of others, and then joining that to an active effort to meet those needs as God enables us. And then Paul says that as you're enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, is which through us, will produce thanksgiving to God there's going to be this concert of thanksgiving the Macedonians will give thanks to God for the ability to minister to the people in Jerusalem the people in Achaia and Corinth they're going to give thanks to God for God's grace to them in giving the churches of Galatia will give thanks to God for their ability to give this offering to the needy saints in Jerusalem and then the people in Jerusalem are the recipients of the gift. We give thanks to God for their brethren in all these Gentile places. And you we'll know, deepen the sense of unity that the Jew and the Gentile in the church have for one another. That, of course, that was the big problem in the early church: is that sense of oneness, that sense of unity. This is going to lead to it. This is going to augment it. This is going to express it. Overflowing many thanksgivings to God. And by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Freely received, freely give. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while well, they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift. And likely the gift that he's speaking about there, clearly, if in my mind, uh, is the gift of his grace in Christ, the gift of Christ himself as being inexpressible, um, and all the blessings that come from that gift. How do you how do you calculate it? How can you express it in its fullness? It's part of those things that Paul says are um, the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of the love of God that passes knowledge. Uh, you can't fully express uh, all, the, all the, the, the riches and all of the ways in which this inexpressible gift we've received that now manifests itself in blessing upon blessing upon blessing within the church within the churches of the Gentiles within the church of Jerusalem um, yeah, it's a great, uh, great statement about giving and how it functions and how it serves and how it works grace in the hearts of the giver uh, and how it leads to the glory and honor of the living God. Well any questions just about the text itself before we move on to the abiding uh, lessons or the theology of giving that I want to just look to summarize with you Well let's do it. Let's do this uh, theology of giving having read through this passage, having heard the things that Paul says having heard at least some of the points of emphasis that I've made what can we say in conclusion ought to enter into the whole matter of giving as Christians, what are some of the principles that Paul states out that uh, sets out that we can um, make as a summary statement of the theology of giving that Paul gives? What's giving to be like? How is it to be done? What ways is it to be expressed? Um, I'll leave it to you. I have an outline of what one, two, three, four, five. I got six things. I think I had a 7 month in my mind that I didn't write down. Maybe I'll, I'll come to that. But um, I had at least six. Okay. Well, we ladies first. We'll begin with Sue. Sue, go ahead. Obviously, cheerfully, yeah. Okay. Well, there's the cheerfulness of the giver, um, Lord. loves a cheerful giver. Um, what's what? What would be? Uh, you know, cheerfulness is part of is, there, can, is there large a larger category that we can frame. Because Paul has lots of things to say about the way they gave. Friends. What's that? There's the, there's the freeness of the gift there's the cheerfulness of the gift there's what? Attitude. attitude there's the earnestness of the gift all of these things enter into the way of the giver, giver's gift the spirit in which, in which um, the giving is offered there's a spirituality there's a Christian spirituality that marks the way of the believer's giving And so that's what I called it. I called it the spirituality of giving. And, you know, not some loosey-goosey idea of spirituality, but clearly Christian spirituality, the kind of spirituality that's motivated by the Holy Spirit, the joy of the Spirit, the love that the Spirit gives, um, the sense of unity that the Spirit imparts into the heart of God's people that makes uh, Christians in Corinth care about Christians in Jerusalem. So this is all a question of the working of the Holy Spirit within us, imparting a distinctive kind of Christian spirituality that makes us earnest about things. It makes us cheerful about things. It makes us um, uh, just desire to do, do things um, not just transactionally. It's not just the putting down of the money in a plate. It's the way we put that money down on the plate in terms of the inner... Attitude of our hearts. What else? I guess in a, in a motivational way, it's because we free, freely received from Christ that we will freely give. Okay, so it's reciprocal from the giving of Jesus. You know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he uh, who was rich became poor for our sakes, that we through his poverty might be made rich. It's, it's actions that flow out of the reality of the gospel. And what I called that is um, I called that the evangelical and evangelically, um, how are we to give, where well, we're to give, I said spirituality, maybe we just to say spiritually, I don't know. I wanted to get all the lees in there like that. But there's this idea of, uh, evangelically, we give out of the gospel. We give out of the grace of the gospel. The things that we've received uh, in the gospel uh, will prompt us to, to giving. So, again, all of morality in the New Testament, it seems to me, has its roots in the gospel. Um. You think of forgiveness. Be forbearing and forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Paul's always drawing upon the gospel as the point of motivation. All of our motive, motives should be rooted in uh, the reality of the gospel in some way or fashion have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus who, in the, existing in the form of God, um, counted not equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, emptied himself, Him obedient unto death, the death of the cross. And that's in the context of saying to the people, uh, don't be all caught up with your own selfish ambitions. Don't be caught up with what's in it for you. Uh, but with humility of mind, we're to humble ourselves and we're to serve the needs of others more than we serve ourselves. Just like Jesus Serve the needs of the church, even at the expense of his own needs. Um, I coming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. What else It comprised the way we give? Were to give spiritually or spirit, with a Christian spirituality? Were to give evangelically? What else? We're given like life Needs of the brethren. Okay. Okay. So that group has need, and then we look to meet that need in our gifts. And then when we have need, those people are to look to our needs in giving. Isn't that what Paul says? And so we would call that what? We would give, um, I guess we would say proportionally. And this goes two ways. It's in proportion to need that exists and it's also in proportion of our ability to give. So when God's blessed us with an abundance, then we give in abundance. When God's blessed us with less abundance, well, it's proportional. It's proportional to our ability and it's also proportional to the need. Don't tell me I'm saying anything Marxist. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not denying personal property. But the